Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican of Mike Graham with me, Kevin O'Sullivan. You're with Talk on TV, on radio, online and on your smart speaker. Coming up... The war on Israel continues with PM Netanyahu saying retaliation has only just begun. And last night, three people were arrested during pro-Palestine protests in London. Keir Starmer promises a return to economic growth and stability ahead of his Labour Party conference speech this afternoon. And some universities are offering thousands of pounds in grants for trans students' cosmetic procedures. You are watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV with me, Kevin O'Sullivan. Yes, you may have noticed I'm not actually Mike Graham. Uh, perish the thought. Uh, no, but Mike's uh, having a day off today. He'll be back as soon as possible. We're hoping tomorrow. Just a brief uh, absence. Uh, normal service will be resumed extremely soon. Uh, meanwhile, a spokesman for Hamas released an audio statement last night to declare that they will broadcast the execution of one Israeli hostage for every time Israeli Israel targets civilians in their homes in Gaza without warning. Uh, with me to talk about the latest developments is a founder of the New Culture Forum, Peter Whittle. Uh, welcome, Peter. But first, uh, let's cross over to our correspondent in Jerusalem, Gareth Brown, who joins us now. Uh, Gareth, uh, first, if you can, tell us more about uh, this threat from Hamas, a chilling threat that they will execute uh, one hostage for every air raid by Israel that they do not get warned about. Uh, uh, well, that is uh, horrific, isn't it? Tell us more about that. Yeah, it's a chilling threat. I mean, we've not seen any evidence that they, they've, they've started doing that or they are actually going to do that. So far, it's just words, thankfully. But what I would say is that that would be a massive es ex escalation, even from Hamas's point of view, to start doing that. And, and for sure, it would invite this huge response um, from Israel and from the international community. Uh, indeed, uh, but when you say, uh, you know, uh, would, will, Israel, uh, will Hamas go through with this? I mean, we've already seen on Saturday and over the weekend, I mean, they're prepared to commit any atrocity. So uh, doubting whether or not they'll go through with this threat to execute hostages uh, may be uh, a feat of optimism, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a fair point. I guess, I guess the point would be, it seems to me at this point, that Hamas is kind of all in on this war. Um, I suspect that they are anticipating now an, an, an Israeli ground inv invasion. 
Um, there's going to be well, there's already been quite a quite a, uh, a sustained air campaign on Gaza from the Israeli Air Force. Um, you know, the fact is we do we do see groups like Hamas make these threats from time to time, and sometimes they they follow through on on these uh, atrocities. Sometimes they don't. Um, so you know, we'll, we we um, they'll be judged by their by their actions, and if they do that, you know, it will be met with a very very uh, strong response by the Israelis. Absolutely. Now, we know that uh, over the weekend, particularly on Saturday, that Israelis were somewhat furious with the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, for not knowing about this, for the failure in intelligence. Uh, usually Israel and Mossad, greatest intelligence service on the face of the earth. Somehow or other, on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War in 1973, Israel had no idea about this. So Netanyahu catching a lot of flack from Israeli people over the weekend but his response uh, is swift, severe and ruthless. Uh, is the mood changing towards Netanyahu among the Israeli people? Are they beginning to say this is a leader of power uh, who will steer us through this crisis or are they still furious with him for letting it happen in the first place? No, I don't, I don't think they're, they're coming in behind the, the, uh, the Prime Minister just yet. I mean, as you say, it's really incredible that the Israeli security forces, the security establishment, didn't see this coming. I spent a lot of time in Gaza, um, and and you know we were always under the under the belief that Israel really knows everything going on in that in that tiny little um, enclave. I think there's there's this talk of a, of a unity government. I mean, whilst this war is going on, I think Netanyahu essentially gets a a reprieve. You know, it's a rally around the flag sort of mentality. I don't think anyone would want to be seen attempting to topple a prime minister when the country is at war. Um, but, you know, this war will eventually end. And then afterwards, there's going to be some real deep searching um, questions about Netanyahu, his capacity to to govern and rule. And, you know, he's always been Mr. Security. That was his thing. You know, I am I'm the guy that is going to keep Israel safe. And that's obviously under question after the events of the last few days. So, I mean, we have to wait and see how things unfold. But frankly, it's hard to see there not being serious repercussions for Netanyahu when this this campaign that Israel is, you know, appears to be about to launch into Gaza um, finishes. Now, that could be weeks or months away. There's a lot that can change in that time. And you can't underestimate that, the, you know, the force of a, of a war on, on how that can change the national conversation. But I don't think the dust has really settled from from Saturday's attack. The blood hasn't really dried. Um, you know, we're seeing skirmishes on the northern border with with Lebanon, with Hezbollah. Um, but but I, I don't think it's fair to say that Netanyahu has has, you know, his his failings have been forgotten. People are still um, they have deep questions about his his governance. And, and that's not just related to this. You know, we've seen these protests every Saturday night in Israel since the start of the year, since he took office over this controversial, um, you know, judicial reform plan that he's been pushing through the parliament here. So. Um, for now, as long as the war goes on, he's he's safe. But but I think as soon as the war stops, there's going to be there's going to be um, there's going to be some jockeying. Yeah, and it's incumbent upon Netanyahu to mount an extremely severe response. He already is, quite clearly. We're hearing that within two days, soldiers, Israeli soldiers, may invade over land. They have 173. Uh, fully paid up soldiers, 300,000 reserve soldiers. I mean, Israeli military might is awesome, 
uh, and you have to fear for Gaza. I mean, my feeling is he's going to flatten the place, isn't he? Yeah, that would be my prediction too. I mean, you have to think, look, Israel has fought five wars in Gaza in the last 15 years, and they haven't succeeded in, 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 in wiping out Hamas. You know, Hamas is as strong now as it's ever been. Um, he can go in. I mean, I'm already you know, speaking to people in Gaza. There's already reports of um, you know, buildings being leveled, um, UN buildings being hit, schools being hit, um, lots of civilian casualties. Okay, that can increase. Things can get a lot worse. But you know, if we end up in this conflict where there's this mass loss of life in Gaza, infrastructure is damaged. Life in that in that in that area is dire. It's really hard already. I mean, and if it gets substantially worse in the coming weeks, um, you have to wonder what what the end game is there. You know, a lot of people in Israel are saying this is our 9/11. Um, and I think when I think about 9/11, as much as we think about the atrocity that happened that day, we also heavily associate it with the response of Western governments, which was, I mean, I think I think you could describe as as cack-handed, and it was it was devastating for, for 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 many many people around the world. So that's that's the question here. Okay, he flattens Gaza. Then what? If you get rid of Hamas, who takes over in Gaza? I mean, it doesn't look like the Palestinian Authority would be capable of governing there. Does Israel want to reoccupy Gaza with ground forces having to patrol the streets? I don't think they have the stomach for that. So there's a lot of what happens next if he does. Okay, in the short term, it might give um, some sort of um, um, some sense of justice to the Israelis if they can mount this really you know, strong campaign. But but how how is that going to improve the general situation? I'm not I'm not sure I've seen an answer to that question yet. Gareth, uh, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. That's Gareth Brown, journalist there in Jerusalem. As I said, with me uh, in the studio is the founder of the New Culture Forum, Peter Whittle. Uh, Peter, I mean, we need to talk about so many aspects of mm. what is going on over there. But you know, I keep hearing you know the Palestinian flag wavers in London. We've got the UN saying, "Oh well, let's have a moment, a minute silence for the casualties in Palestine," not even mentioning mm -hmm. the casualties mm -hmm. in Israel. Uh, and uh, as we were just discussing this awesome, terrifying response by Netanyahu. Yes. Understand. And I keep coming back to this. Well, they started it. They started it. So uh, yeah. let's not demonise Israel here, eh? No. I think, uh, well, as for the flag wavers in London... I by mean, the way, Peter, sorry to interrupt, but we are watching yet again, I mean, yeah. the, the constantly the huge explosions now uh, in Gaza as uh, the uh, Israeli airstrikes continue apace, but sorry. Yes, no, I, it, it's, it's terrible to, you know, to witness what we have over the past few days in so many capitals, actually, so many cities, including, as you say, in London, where people have actually been, these demonstrators have actually been uh, glorying, I see it, in barbarism, mm. you know, in, in what is, can only be described as a kind of medieval-type barbarism uh, that's been visited on Israel and the uh, Israeli people. And I think it is quite disgusting that they were even allowed to do that. Um, it is extraordinary how, when it comes to Israel, there's this kind of equivocal response. I think it is beholden to every Western country to absolutely give its full-throated support to Israel. Um, you know, they are our, one of our strongest allies. We are one of their strongest allies too. And also for Western civilization, actually, for which they're part. Um, these are the bigger questions here. I think what people don't often realize, actually, Kevin, is that uh, Hamas, you know, you're dealing with people here 
who want to obliterate Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, it's their, only, it's their only ambition. Yes, all this talk about free Palestine is almost beside the point. One of their main uh, motives is to obliterate Israel, is to wipe out Jews, is to kill Jews. If you look at their charter from 1988, when they were first founded, um, it's quite explicit about that. OK, they finessed it a bit a few years later, but that's what it's really about. And that kind of impulse actually predates even uh, the foundation of Hamas. And this is the problem with them. Uh, you know, they know uh, that their ambition, their aim, is unachievable. Yeah. They know uh, the Israeli state, the Jewish state, uh, is here to stay. And yet their only ambition is to destroy it, is to get rid of it, uh, so that Israel doesn't exist. So given that they know that can't happen, they settle for second best. And that's what this is all about. They are uh, determined to instigate eternal conflict. That's what this is about. Yes, uh, yeah, exactly. Also, I think uh, 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 William Hague in The Times today made this point as well, that it's kind of, it might have in mind the growing sort of direction of travel in the Middle East, you know, with the various deals being made, which have been sort of hoped for, and that there is one obviously imminent with Saudi Arabia. And this is a kind of uh, a pushback, if you like, against that, um, a sort of rage, as he put it. But um, I think that it can't be said enough, Kevin, that, you know, we should absolutely stand behind, behind Israel. Um, the, the accounts of what happened over those past two, those two days on oh, a holy day as well, mm -hmm. um, just, well, beg a belief. To say it is actually their 9-11 is not, I think, hyperbole. No, I don't think it is. Uh, and uh, what Hamas didn't like, I mean, they're a destructive organisation. That's mm. all they're about is conflict and destruction. Mm. Uh, what they didn't like was that uh, Saudi Arabia is closing in on a kind of peace That's deal it. with Israel and other Arab nations mm. Mm. Are, ha have finally come to the conclusion that sort of eternal strife with Israel is getting no one anywhere. So yeah. therefore, they're saying, right, we need to come to a deal where Israel and us can coexist yeah. in a kind of harmony. That's the last thing in the world Hamas want. And so would you say, Peter, uh, that this raid, this uh, declaration of war over the weekend by Hamas was a deliberate attempt to scupper uh, the new harmon harmonious relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel? Yes, but at the same time, Kevin, uh, you know, it could happen, it, and it, it could happen again, and it could, it's happened many times before. So, essentially, this is a long-term aim of theirs, uh, regardless of deals that might be going on or not. I think the other point to make as well is, I just talked about the flag wavers in, in London last night. Uh, I have to say Paris actually had a, a very peaceful uh, vigil in, in support of Israel, and they had a march. I would like to see many more marches in countries like this one supporting Israel, actually. Um, we get way too much of the other stuff, you know, from people who are supposedly British, uh, who basically come out on those sort of events. But I would also say that, you know, there is this sense in which uh, the left, the hard left, and the people who might go on demonstrations like this, uh, they hate Israel because, in some ways, it's a standing rebuke to them. You know, here so, is... That, sorry, Peter, there's a, we've got to keep commentating on this. Uh, another massive explosion. I mean, these are just coming in thick and fast. Uh, the mind boggles as to where we're heading today. But uh, sorry. Yes, I, I was going to say, it's, it's, you have this extraordinarily successful country 
Right. The only democracy in the Middle East, uh, extraordinarily developed in terms of culture and science and all of those things, surrounded by pretty corrupt tyrannies, right? And therefore, it's a standing rebuke to them. Mm-hmm. And the left can't bear it, you know? The left can't bear it. And what is the problem with the left? I mean, you know, uh, you look at the Labour Party conference, in fairness to Sakia Starmer, he's completely condemned the actions of Hamas, uh, made it clear, clear where the Labour Party stands on this, at least according to the leader. But outside uh, of the Liverpool yeah. conference hall, you know, hundreds yeah. of people waving Palestinian flags. I mean, that is a syndrome uh, that we're only too well aware of in the Labour Party, that the left of the Labour Party is four square behind Palestine and hates Israel. Yes, I know. It, it's very, very strong. Uh, indeed, obviously, Keir Starmer supported... Corbyn throughout all those years when Corbyn was quite unequivocal uh, when he supported Hamas, um, which is extraordinary when you look back on it now. I think one of the reasons with the left is that they are riven with self-hatred for a start. Uh, Never, ever underestimate that. Um, But as I said, also, um, they... Israel to them symbolises the West, it symbolises America, America. it symbolises all these things. The sheer success of it... Uh, also is something that they can't deal with. Um, and I think that one of the funniest things I've seen, actually, Kevin, this is a while ago now, is that amongst many of the left kind of groups, you know, on campuses and in, in countries like ours, there was one group of gays, gays for Palestine, gays right, for with a big flag, gays for Palestine. Now, do they have any idea, these idiots how gay people would be treated. Yeah, it's a very good point. Any idea. Israel is the only place, for example, where you have a gay pride and you can live openly. It is quite extraordinary. That's just one example I'm giving you of of the attitude of these people when they criticise Israel. They're politically illiterate, I totally agree. Uh, Let's discuss, we've only got a minute or so left, Peter, but uh, this extremely chilling uh, threat by Hamas. They've taken uh, hostage about uh, more than 100 people after their raid on Israel, taken them back into Gaza, apparently uh, is keeping them underground. They are now saying that for every bomb, you know, look how often we're seeing Mm. the explosions go off now. Every time one of those uh, explosions happens and Israel does not warn Gaza that it's about to bomb it, uh, they will execute and broadcast this execution. They will execute one hostage and then broadcast it. Uh, Now, given the atrocities they've already committed, rape, kidnap, murder, murdering people on their doorsteps when they opened the door. Uh, I wouldn't put this past them, would you? No, and, um, do you know, in a terrible way, perhaps, Kevin, people... It needs almost to be seen so that people know what we're talking about with these people. I mean, at the moment, there is most... Ex- <laughs> there is the most... Another one? Sorry. Yes. Sorry, I keep interrupting. Another one's gone off. Huge explosion. Sorry, there is Karen. the most... Uh, extraordinary level of ignorance about the general situation. But, you know, you're talking about ISIS levels of barbarism. And so I think that, therefore, finally, maybe, many other people will wake up when that happens. 
Welcome back. You are watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV with me, Kevin O'Sullivan. Still with me to talk about the latest developments is founder of the New Culture Forum, Peter Whittle. Now, the Labour Party conference is taking place and we are expecting to hear from Sakir Starmer at two o'clock today. Could this be his last as opposition leader? What would a country under Starmer as Prime Minister look like? Uh, I dread to think, Peter. <laughs> How do you think it might look? Well, uh, you know, if the, the, the kind of um, cynical uh, part of me would say, the way the Tories have been behaving, not much different, actually. But, I mean, obviously there are certain differences. Um, you know, I think that, from what I can understand, the Labour Party conference, which I haven't, I have to say, been glued to, but uh, apparently uh, there has been very little dissent. I mean, they're obviously trying to... You know, it's a completely uh, united front. Um, I think one thing that has struck me, what's quite interesting I saw in the Times, is that, um, which might go down very well, is that he's going to apparently announce on house building a whole set of new towns. If you might remember, after the Second World War, Labour actually, you know, built these new towns, Milton Keynes and Stevenage and uh, Crawley, places like that. There is an aim, apparently, to do this again. Um... You know, I think that when you look at the Tories and the way that they dealt with HS2, which is pretty much a complete cock-up, um, and then they're offering something which appears very, very forward-looking, that might appear very attractive. Same time, I'm not quite that pleased about the idea of yet more British land actually being, you know, bricked over and used for new towns. Uh, who are going to be in these new towns? I mean, it seems to me... It's not the old towns out well, first, shouldn't exactly, they? Exactly. <laughs> they're a bit of a mess. The cities are falling apart. I mean, it's as simple as that. But with, with Labour, the last thing you are ever going to get is any kind of mention in, a, in any way of immigration in relation to housing. Well, let's, let's, let's quickly talk about immigration because uh, as a sort of... Uh, curtain raiser to this conference. Uh, Keir Starmer went on to the BBC, was interviewed by Laura Kunzberg at the weekend. Yes. Uh, and he came up with this extraordinary statement. Uh, she said, oh, you're against the Rwanda scheme. Oh, yeah, we're against the Rwanda scheme. It's inhuman, it's wrong, blah, 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 blah. The way they always do. Uh, so she said, well, suppose the Tories get the Rwanda scheme going, mm -hmm. you know, that the... Mm -hmm. Uh, Supreme Court given the, the yeah. green light and we start flying migrants to East Africa and it stops the boats. Uh, the boats stop coming. Uh, what would, you, would you keep the Rwanda scheme going? No, I wouldn't. I would get rid of the Rwanda scheme. So his policy is if the Rwanda scheme works, when he gets into power, he's going to stop the Rwanda scheme and the boats will start coming yeah. again. Uh, that's a political incoherence on an epic scale, isn't it? It, it is, but also, I, do you know what? I doubt that he would actually... I think he would keep the Tory you know, position if, if, if they get through... And yeah, they, don't let him off the hook at this stage. No, I'm not. No, that's I'm, what he's no, saying. It's his pure cynicism. No, I think the far greater problem with Labour is that they are essentially an open borders, borders party. Yes, simple as that. Yeah. We, you've got this issue of the boats, but then at the same time you've got net migration running at six hundred and five thousand last year, and the I think the uh, uh, over the next two years. They're saying it will be a million. You know, this is net, this is not gross. Um, yeah, that we're, we're actually letting in over a million people legally every year. Right. As you say, some of them leave the country, yeah. so the net influx is around about 600,000. So we're all sitting around going, oh, these, this illegal 
But these boats yeah. coming across the channel, 48,000 last yeah. year. They're talking about 60,000 this year. Uh, what we don't talk about is the million that are coming in legally. Well, Extraordinary. Exactly, but I don't think Labour have actually said any policy point on this at all. I mean, you know, the fact is, is that they are pro, not just pro-migration, they are open borders. Yes. They might be keeping that quite quiet at the moment, but pretty much all the left now is. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, you say that these are country-changing numbers. Um, you're talking about mass migration. No one is talking about, you know, being anti-migration in principle. I mean, in the sense that before Tony Blair came in in 97, it was around about 50,000 net a year. Um, I think most people would say that's reasonable, right? We're not talking about that anymore, can we? We're talking about, like, it's getting towards a million, isn't it, for a year? Yeah. And, I mean, Labour have no plans on that whatsoever other than to simply welcome it. Let's talk about Labour generally. I mean, I think that what uh, most people are frightened about in terms of Starmer and Labour uh, is he's been talking a moderate game, trying to distance himself from Corbynism, mm. his hopeless, useless, catastrophic predecessor, and he's been trying to sell the nation a kind of Blairite me message. Yeah, yeah. You know, your money's safe with us, the economy's safe with us. We're a moderate, centrist party. Uh, but what many people feel is that as soon as he gets into number 10, Downing Street, uh, the mask will be lifted and we'll see the real Keir Starmer, and Keir Starmer is a lifelong died in the wool, extreme lefty. So we've already heard uh, Rachel Reeves yesterday, the ch uh, shadow chancellor, uh, hinting that she'll launch tax raids on the wealthy, mm. uh, stop them avoiding tax. I don't know where she gets that from. Uh, uh, it's difficult to avoid tax in this country, to say the least. Uh, and of course, we have Starmer's, uh, shall we say, ambivalent approach to the migrant crisis mm. and worse of all, to the EU, who he clearly, essentially, wants to rejoin. Yes, of course, but you, you missed out there, Gary, and he's... Um, has a he, long he, list of things I want he, to criticise him Does about. he now define... Can he now define a woman? Have we I reached don't out? believe he can No, yet. I think we're kind of, you know, on the fence a bit on that, aren't we? It's, it's quite pathetic. I mean, the problem is, there's an overall problem in the country, really, is that the calibre of people who would lead us, including, you know, him or whatever, is very low. It's, it's very, very low. Um, so it's, it's very much who do you choose. I would strongly say to people at the next election, whenever it is, this time next year maybe, uh, is that they shouldn't vote for either one. I don't know that, that you might say, well, who do we vote for? I think we do need a new party, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, none of the other smaller ones are doing anything. The point, like the point is that, Peter, you, you know, uh, everybody always says this, respect to you for saying so, but... Uh, you know, we all know, in the end, come uh, ballot box day, it divides mm. down the big party lines. So, on that basis, do you think Sadiq Khan has a chance of uh, redeeming himself to some... Does he stand an opportunity of maybe not losing the next election? Because if anyone can lose this next election, it's Keir Starmer. Yeah, I think that the... What I'm going to say about the Tories... Uh is that they have got the most amazing survival instinct, mm -hmm. right? So there are a couple of green shoots, at least in their eyes, aren't there at the moment in the polls? There's a slight lowering. Because they've been uh, deliberately putting clear blue water between them yes. and Labour. Yeah. Late in life, they've realised that maybe... 
people don't necessarily want to spend hundreds of extra pounds per month on their energy bills. They don't necessarily want to be banned from driving petrol cars or going on holiday to Spain. Late in life, he's realised that all this green, green claptrap maybe isn't a vote winner. So we've got that. We've got uh, immigration policies yeah. and so on. And so, so he's trying to say, look, there, there, there's uh, a, a very different... A proposition here, vote Tory and you get a proper Tory government, vote Labour and you don't, of course. Uh, but uh, just how much we can trust uh, Sadiq Khan in all of this, uh, I suppose we wait for election day. Is he doing enough? Um, Keir Starmer. Uh, yes. Well, no, uh, Sadiq Khan. Is he doing enough to offer a clear alternative to the British people that might just... Uh, cash in on the fact that there are fears about Keir Starmer. Um, no, he's, he's not doing... Uh, the Prime Minister is not doing enough as yet. Um, as I said, they have got the most amazing capacity for survival. Um, I wish they didn't have, actually. <laughs> I would like to see them obliterated, the Tories, and a proper Conservative alternative put in its place. That's my, my position um, for what it's worth. But I think that, uh, essentially, if... If after 13 years they cannot get a grip either on legal migration or on illegal migration, mm -hmm. whatever they might say now, whatever Suella Braveman might say at the uh, conference, you, you know, you really have got to look at them and say, you've said it so many times, nothing is going to change. This is pure window dressing for the time that, you know, the election eventually is called. And that, that's what I think it is. I think you've got to take it all with a pinch of salt. To your other question, though, um, no, I don't think you should trust Starmer, especially on the EU, actually. Especially Abs on the absolutely EU. Absolutely not. Uh, let's talk about the NHS, another yes. battleground, if you like. Remember uh, Dave, uh, Dave, no, um, Ed Miliband saying, we've got to weaponise the NHS. Yes. Well, the NHS will be weaponised in the run-up to the next election. It always is. Uh, but the common ground uh, among both of the parties will be a complete terror to do anything about the basket case that is our National Health Service. Neither of them will do what's necessary, and that is a root and branch reform from top mm. to bottom. They won't mm. do it mm. because they're too busy saying, our amazing NHS, we support the NHS, we yeah. won't change the NHS. Well, I wish you would. Yes, I think uh, with the NHS, actually, um, I've, I sense a slight change in public mood there, actually. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Since you, know, the COVID the, you know, there was this untouchable, yeah. you know, it's like, our, what is it, Nigel Lawson called it, uh, Britain's equivalent of a, of a religion. Yes. Uh, and so you couldn't, everything was, oh, you're going to privatise, you're going to privatise it. Uh, now, it seems to me, people have become exhausted and exasperated with the service they get. Um, and all the, with each statistic that comes out, whether it's on cancer, whether it's on all of these things, uh, basically think, wait a minute, um, no one's really saying anymore that they don't have enough money. So what exactly is going wrong? You know, yeah. so I think that uh, there there might well be changes to the NHS. It might well be, who knows? It could even happen under a Labour government. Actually, I just wish politicians, particularly politicians in government, uh, would grow a pair and tell the NHS what to do. It, yeah. Yeah, in the end, the uh, boss of the NHS is a government uh, servant, and he should do what he's told, and or she. Uh, it's at the moment it's a bloke, but it could be a woman, of course. Uh, now. Uh, this is my problem. 
you know, we've got these consultants on strike, we've got the doctors on strike, the nurses, the ambulance drivers, all these frontline workers. Uh, whether or not they should be allowed to go on strike is something uh, we should debate, if you ask me, because when they go on strike, people die. Yeah. Uh, however, you've got this 200 billion quid a year the NHS gets, uh, and clearly, if it organised its finances correctly, it would be able to pay doctors and consultants and nurses pretty much what they want. Uh, instead, uh, was it two weeks ago, we learned uh, once again, they're advertising for 244 yeah. diversity Yes, offices. exactly. It, this organisation is incorrigible. Yeah. It's yeah. incorrigible. It's, 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 it's extraordinary. The other thing as well is, I think, you know, you mentioned there Ed Miliband talking about uh, it should be weaponized. Well, they've sort of weaponized themselves in a way. I mean, they're a much more political organization than they ever used to be. I mean, and uh, for example, with the doctors, you know, the junior doctors strike, mm -hmm. uh, the British Medical Association, which is their kind of union, if you like, um, is, has been very much taken over. It is by their the union. Left. It's a two-bit union. You know? Just calls itself a posh name. Yes, exactly. That's all it is. So I think that uh, I think exactly. But I do think that people are feeling maybe that it's not all just about money. You can't just throw money at it. I think that that, that penny is dropping, I think. Welcome back. You are watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV. Now it's time for this. Another day means another reason for universities to waste your money. University College London is offering thousands of pounds in grants to trans and non-binary students for fake breasts and chest binders, setting aside almost £5,000 to help students buy clothing, beauty products or therapy appointments. While at the University of Kent, students can now be given up to £100 to put towards gender-affirming products and even minor cosmetic procedures. Toby Young of the Free Street Peach Union said it beggars belief that universities are spending money on this nonsense when they're charging almost 10 grand a year for tuition and clamoring to put fees up. Uh, there you are. Uh, that is the situation at Britain's universities and no one is at all surprised. Uh, now, uh, the Israeli Prime Minister has said uh, enormous force uh, will be used against the Hamas terror group following Saturday's deadly attacks on Israel. After Israel hit back at targets inside Gaza, Benjamin Netanyahu says the retaliation by his forces has only just begun while Hamas has threatened to kill a hostage every time Israel carries out an airstrike without warning. Here in the UK, three arrests were made at a pro-Palestinian demo near the Israeli embassy yesterday, while Prime Minister Rishi Sunak joined prayers at a North London synagogue, where he said he would stop at nothing to keep the Jewish community safe. After the recent attacks on Israel, we have witnessed a marked rise in anti-Semitic attacks in Europe. Joining us now, live from Golders Green in North London, uh, Northwest London, is Talk TV correspondent Nick Ellaby. Uh, Nick, uh, I was there last night. The atmosphere was very strange, infested with cops. Uh, what's the atmosphere been like over there, you know, last couple of days, but now, right now? Good morning, Kev. Yeah, I'm actually uh, in Stamford Hill at the moment, but I have been in Golders Green over the last 24 hours. And I would say 
tensions are slightly higher on the streets there, but all of the people I've spoken to, they tell me they're not necessarily worried about anti-Semitic attacks, but they are concerned about what they've seen in the UK over the last 24 hours. We visited a business called Peter on Golders Green Road, which had its front window smashed in. Uh, and also a cash register was stolen. And then on the underground bridge next to that business was written in graffiti, Free Palestine. The same message was written on a number of underground businesses in the area. And this is North London. Golders Green is really the centre of uh, North London Jewish population. Stamford Hill as well. Big Hasidic Jewish population here. A lot of guys coming to and from morning prayers at the moment. And I've spoken to those guys as well. In Golders Green itself, there was a lot, of, a lot of concern, certainly a lot of anger about a lack of police presence on the streets. We also we saw a guy who took it upon himself to climb a ladder up that underground bridge and actually try and uh, blot out the graffiti himself. It's actually now been done by British Transport Police. They've covered up that graffiti. Um, I spoke to another guy in a, in a business, uh, a takeaway business, just three doors down from Peter, who's actually himself been called up to the Israeli Defence Force. He's hoping to fly out in two days. He hoped uh, his flight wasn't cancelled. Another guy I spoke to in the area uh, wasn't keen on being identified, but uh, he also told us that um, he's quite concerned about some positive messages he's seen at his university in support of, of Palestine, but wasn't keen to be identified. So the police themselves are still not connecting the graffiti on those bridges to the attack on and the vandalism and the looting that happened in that Jewish kosher business. But the people I spoke to in Golders Green don't see it that way. They think the two incidents are connected. We had some um, vandals just smash up a shop because it's purely a Jewish shop. Jewish Israeli owned, I don't know, but they just standard anti-Semitism that we expect every time something goes on in Israel. Literally, anyone who thinks that it's not that, that, that's anti-Israel isn't anti-Semitism, just come here, you see it all over the time, all over, every time, without fail. If it's not about Israel, then why are they attacking Jews here? They broke the windows here. They walk around the windows, and <laughs> I don't understand where is all the police around, where is the barnet, where is everyone? No one around. They should be here, not us. We don't need to defend ourselves. They need to do it for us. So it's me, no one care about us. So a lot of concern on the streets of Golders Green, just a few miles from here, about, they're telling me, a lack of police presence. I'm hearing the same thing here in Stamford Hill as well. But the Home Secretary did visit the streets of Golders Green last night. She was there with community leaders and local police. The Met have said they've stepped up patrols. But here in Stamford Hill, the guys I've been talking to this morning have told me they're not really seeing any increased police presence on the streets, and that is something they tell me they would like to see. A lot of the mosques and the schools here, the Jewish schools, do have their own private security. That's as normal. There's nothing increased about that. I've spoken to a couple of security guards this morning. They say business as usual. Uh, the people I've spoken to here as well tell me they're, they're not concerned. They're going about their daily business, kids going to and from school, guys going to and from morning prayers as well this morning. And uh, there were also a few people I, I spoke to very encouraged by the UK government and their messages of support. And Rishi Sunak's speech yesterday, his message to the Jewish people of Great Britain is really, I am with you. He promised to protect them against fears of a rise in, in anti-Semitic attacks. And uh, this is what the people of Stamford Hill and the guys going to and from prayers made of Rishi Sunak's speech and the UK government's support. 
we always try to to show out our thank feeling for and especially for our loved Prime Minister Richie Soon. He's always with the best with all of the communities and special to the Jewish people and we hope it's going to stay like this and obviously every normal being which is seeing them the situation now in Israel and in Gaza understand that we have to show support for anyone which is in trouble and anyone which is uh, especially civilians. Uh, Nick, as I say, I, I don't live far from where you are and uh, certainly I'm quite close to Golders Green. I was down there last night and I don't know about today, but last night uh, it was infested with cops, uh, maybe due to the visit, did you say, of the Home Secretary. Uh, they had do sniffer dogs and everything. So there was a very strange atmosphere down there. I guess what I'd like to ask you, you've spoken to the Jewish community in Golders Green and, uh, of course, in uh, Stamford Hill, where you are now. Are they kind of surprised, the local people, that, I mean, what I find uh, unexpected in all of this, you know, the, the Jewish people, the Israelis are the victims in all this. There they were just about to begin their weekend on Saturday when suddenly, uh, you know, more than a thousand uh, Hamas soldiers descended upon them and started committing terrible atrocities, you know, murdering people, raping people, kidnapping people. Uh, and uh, what is the response here in Britain, uh, in London? It is great waves of support for the Palestinians. Don't the Jewish community in Stamford Hill and Golders Green find that response kind of surprising? Well, as I mentioned, a guy I spoke to who's at university in London, he didn't want me to say which university he's at. He's certainly concerned about what he's seen uh, pro-Palestinian groups there offering messages of support uh, for Hamas and, and for the terrorists. But certainly, if you look at the government messaging and what Rishi Sunak said, visiting these communities in North London, very much backing his, his support and reiterating his support for the Israeli government and their right to defend themselves. And also to the Jewish people of Great Britain, his message really was, I am with you and I will protect you. As we've heard, there are you know, arising concerns about anti-Semitic hate crimes, as always when, when we, uh, we're off the back of incidents like this that we've seen in Israel and Gaza over the weekend. So certainly the people I've spoke to here on the street this morning, they tell me they're, they're very encouraged and actually feel very supported by the UK government and their messaging and what Rishi Sunak's saying. So the message I'm hearing is that they do feel safe and protected here in the UK. Uh, but given that we know what's going to happen in the Middle East, we know what's going to happen in Gaza and indeed Israel over the next uh, few days, weeks, months, years even, uh, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. I mean, uh, are the local community where you are, are they trepidatious that as the conflict there gets worse, uh, the tension where they are here in London might get worse as well? Yeah, there certainly are those fears, Kevin, for sure. I'll tell you something interesting, actually. We, we tried to film outside a, a certain mosque this morning and uh, the rabbi asked us expressly not to put his mosque in the background of our shot because he was very concerned about his mosque becoming eventually a target. So, yes, there, there is a lot of concern here about reprisals and, and what might happen in the future. Now, later today, leader of the opposition, Sakir Starmer, will deliver a keynote speech at Labour's party conference where he's expected to set out some of the party's big ideas and policies. Uh, one of the big policies already trailed at the weekend is that Labour would scrap the government's Rwanda migrant plan if elected. 
even if it worked and stopped the boats. Here to talk about this and some of today's other big stories is Rafe Heidel-Manku, Senior Fellow at the New Culture Forum. Uh, thanks for joining me, uh, Rafe. Uh, has Starmer misjudged the public mood on immigration? I mean, this is an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? Uh, interviewed by Laura Kunzberg at the weekend. Uh, so the government gets the Rwanda scheme going and it works. Uh, it sends the deterrent message and all the boats stop. Uh, when you get into power, Keir, what would you do? I'd reverse uh, the Rwanda scheme. And so therefore, I assume, allow the boats to start crossing again. It's mad. It's, it's a remarkable position. You know, we were all told that Sir Keir Starmer understood the, the concerns and issues of the Red Wall, for example, and he wants to get their votes back. And we know from all the evidence, immigration is either the number one or the number two issue of priority for those very vote for those very voters. It's a complete betrayal, and it explodes any hope people may have had that the Labour Party was going to be serious about getting in to grips with immigration. Now, the one good thing he's got in this policy announcement we'll have later today is that he wants to actually speed up the processing of those who are already here. That's a good thing because we have a backlog of 140,000 people. The rate at which they're being processed is tiny, 1% only getting processed. And most scandalously, and I'm amazed that nobody in the media picks up on this, we approve 74% of all I pick applications. up on it all the time. Yeah, it's Whereas France remarkable. Germany approves about 5%. Exactly, a huge... Yeah, you know, we're being taken for fools. I'm sure, I'm sure you're not going to see any decline in that percentage of approvals under a Labour government um, than, you, than you, have, you have at the moment. But the reality is you need to have a deterrent. Now, there are many problems with the Rwanda plan, primarily the fact that it's being clogged up in the courts by refugee groups and by activist lawyers. But on principle, it's an excellent policy. My own preference, actually, was to use one of the British overseas territories. That way you would negate any need for to clog things up in the court if we were in charge. The Ascension Islands, um, a wonderful idea to, to set up there, a migrant camp and a migrant processing centre using a cruise ship moored off the coast of Britain to actually pick up all immigrants, all migrants, asylum seekers, put them onto the cruise ship when it's full up. You sail it down to the Ascension Islands and you build the infrastructure there just as the Australians did with Nauru, which was also thousands of miles away from Australia. That would have been a far better proposal. But, you know, one of the other great problems is that in this proposal of uh, Keir Starmer that we'll hear today, his main focus seems to be upon tackling the gangs that are facilitating these crossings. And the reality is that is the worst thing you can focus on because there will always be another gang to fill it up. And the fact that he actually doesn't understand the fact that there are many more gangs willing to, waiting in the wings to fill those vacant spots, proves that they simply don't have a clue. And these are such basic facts that it leaves me in, you know, in a state of dismay as to what's going to be in the next, uh, in the next term of office if it is a Labour government. Uh, indeed. Now, uh, right now, the Supreme Court is sitting in judgment. We await uh, its verdict with uh, bated breath. Uh, I mean, in the next couple of days, uh, we should get a decision uh, which will be a game changer. Uh, if the Supreme Court says the Rwanda scheme can go ahead, I mean, I'm assuming that pretty soon after that, we'll start taking planes off for Eastern well, Africa. Well, I, 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 do you expect... What do you think the verdict will be? Will it be yes or will it be so this no? Is, yeah, well, this is the third day of the of the deliberations. We're not going to get a ruling until November, even though this is the first, this is the final day. But the government is cautiously optimistic of a victory. 
Uh, Lord Reid, who's president of the Supreme Court, has previously expressed his dismay at the overreach of the European Court of Human Rights mm -hmm. and the overreach of human rights legislation. His deputy, Lord Hodge, similarly inclined. So there's every reason to believe that the government will win. But the, the earliest we can imagine flights actually taking off, if there is a win for the government, is in February. But even in February, things aren't necessarily going to be over because the European Court well, of Human that, Rights... Wait a second. <laughs> If we get the, the Supreme Court decision in November, I mean, we're led to believe they'll make the decision this week, but uh, no one in this country ever wants to do anything uh, speedily, do they? They want to take ages in the political process. It's so slow. So anyway, they're going to make the decision this week. We'll find out in November. Why would we wait until February to take planes off? Why wouldn't they take off in November? Well, because, well, there are various governmental reasons why that is to be the See, case. there you go. But, yeah, I bet they haven't explained to me, but what they've told me is February is the earliest. Perhaps they have to have hearings on, on each individual's. But even in February, the earliest date we have so far, the European Court could still impose an interim measure to halt those flights. Luckily, we have a trump card now because we now have this Illegal Migration Act that the government quite correctly brought in. So Alan Braverman can actually... Um, exempt us from that. But even that use of that is going to be challenged in the courts too. And all the time we're getting closer and closer to the election and the Tories were counting on there being a, a good number of migrants being transported to, uh, to Rwanda in time for the general election and it looks ever more likely that there'll be a, a trickle, if, if any at all, going by that point. Why don't we just leave the European Convention on Human Rights then we could take the planes off whenever we want, like the sovereign nation that we voted for. It's, uh, a, very, it's a very attractive idea. Unfortunately, as much as I like it too, the problem is it's tied into the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland and also our new trade and cooperation agreement we have with the EU would make things like extradition and uh, criminal and you know, dealing with criminals far more complicated. We do have this trump card for the Illegal Migration Act that can exempt us from, from rulings. I just hope that that goes through unchallenged. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that, that uh, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, Kemi Badenoch, the Business Secretary, have both come right out and said it. We should leave the European Convention on Human Rights, make our own so sovereign decisions. Prime Minister comes in and says, uh, we should use the clause in the Illegal Immigration Act uh, that would allow us to over rule the ECHR. Now, I'm thinking if we try to overrule a decision by the ECHR, all hell will break loose. I, I think we should just leave. The well, Prime Minister... all hell will definitely break loose either way. We, we, go, <laughs> we go about that. That's I think, true. <laughs> I, I think more important, actually, is we need to actually revisit the institutions and the conventions that were established after World War II that got us into this mess. The 1951 Convention on Refugees, for example. Mm. These were all designed for at a time when migration didn't cross over continents but happened within regions, you know? And I, fully understandably, we needed to accommodate the Poles and the Jews and others who were displaced and couldn't return back to, to the communist Eastern Europe, for example. But we're in a different world altogether now. We need to, to get rid of that and devise a new convention on refugees that's fit for the 21st century and ideally limits migrants to within the region. So if you are migrants from Africa, you are rehoused within Africa. Uh, yes, exactly. And Sir LeBron, of course, had a point. Uh, why are we governed uh, by a convention on refugees uh, caused, uh, formed by the... United Nations in 1951. It was to deal with the people who were made homeless, refugees in the slipstream of World War II. 
1951, and that's what governs our migration policies. That is ridiculous. She's got a good point there. Uh, let's uh, talk about what went on here, Rafe, last night in London. Uh, extraordinarily, after what Israel suffered at the weekend, uh, there they all are, uh, the Palestinian supporters waving their flags. Good old Palestine, evil Israel. As I said earlier, look, uh, you know, uh, supporting Palestine is everyone's right if you want to do that. Uh, I can see the case there. However, not right now. They're not reading the room, given what uh, Hamas uh, did on behalf of Palestine over the weekend. They, they raped, killed and kidnapped people. Uh, yes, I had the misfortune to be caught up in that yesterday. There was a great parade down Park Lane that I was caught up in. I mean, look, cast your mind back to 9-11 or to 7-7 in London, the atrocities committed then. Imagine if two days later in Paris and Berlin and Toronto there had been crowds in the streets assembling to celebrate those atrocities. Yes. That's exactly what we're seeing on the streets of London today. And where are the police in all of this? Remember, Hamas is a prescribed terrorist organisation. Yeah, because you tell Sup the BBC that. Supporting Hamas is actually a criminal offence with a maximum penalty of 14 years in jail. Anybody po posting on the internet or protesting in support of Hamas's atrocities should face the full force of the law, and those people who are marching in, this, in these marches should be referred to the Prevent Programme. Now, I don't think the Prevent Programme has any... Was going to, is going to make any change to these people's work. lives. But the point is, when you see people being referred all the time for, for issuing tweets and so forth, I think we should, there should be equal enforcement of the law here, and we definitely should see action being taken. You know, we, increasingly we see the police making a great show about arresting some poor retired pensioner who, ret who retweets an innocent limerick. Well, these now, we have evidence in the last week of real, genuine evidence of hate, and the police must uh, show that there is no fear or favour in terms of the application of laws regarding hate. It's interesting, isn't it, the way... I just knew the narrative would switch like this. Uh, this isn't Israel's fault. Uh, this is the fault of Hamas, who mounted that horrific raid on Saturday morning, uh, committing terrible atrocities, uh, raping women, uh, killing people on their doorstep as soon as they opened the door, just executing them in the street, uh, and, of course, kidnapping uh, more than a 100 uh, hostages who are now, we're told, underground in uh, Gaza somewhere. Now, that's what Israel suffered, and I knew pretty swiftly, swiftly because you knew Israel would react uh, ruthlessly, would react uh, with great severity, that fairly soon uh, the usual suspects would switch the narrative to evil bully Israel. This is not Israel's fault. They didn't start this, did they? They have absolutely every right to defend themselves and to get back their hostages. Let's remember that. They've had people taken from their own territory and brought, and, and brought out of it. And I think you have to actually, yes, ask and question the motivations of those people who've come out in support of Palestine, particularly at this, at this exact time. You know, and there's this curious alignment we've always had now between the left and between the fascist elements of Islam. And that's what we're dealing with here, this very, very anti-democratic, fascistic element of radicals. And you know, just remind, it reminds me somewhat of the, uh, of the Iranian Revolution, 
when the when the uh, the, Demo- the students allied with a radical fundamentalist to overthrow the uh, overthrow the Shah of Iran, what happened was as soon as the Shah was overthrown, the, the, the fundamentalist crushed the students behind. And it's just it's amazing that you know Israel is the one example in the region of democracy yeah. where women's rights can flourish, where gay rights where can gay where, rights. where gay rights can can flourish. And yet they are the ones who are being stigmatized here by the very people who normally are the ones celebrating women's rights and gay rights. I I think it's an outrage. Let's have a look at uh, some of the scenes unfolding in London last night. Palestinian supporters uh, around the Israeli embassy. Let's have a look at this. the guy uh, taking his dogs for a walk, uh, perhaps not uh, the best place uh, for an evening stroll with your pooches, uh, but uh, extraordinary scenes, you know, uh, well, as you were look, just saying. Some, all, some of us good have been, old Palestine. Some of us have been warning for years about the dangers of the com- combination of mass immigration and a policy of multiculturalism. You know, in the 20th century, we got things about right. In the 80s and 90s, Britain's diversity was, in, was, in, was enriching to our culture. We had a healthy number of about 50,000 immigrants coming, coming over uh, every year. It's now 1.2 million gross. And when there is no incentive, therefore, for people to assimilate into the culture, you're going to get situations like this. And unfortunately, we've been spoon-fed for, for the last 25 years this idea that diversity is our greatest strength without any evidence being put in defence of it. Whereas we're seeing the reality now, there's an increase in sectarianism, whether it be these scenes or whether it be the violence we saw between Hindus and Muslims in Leicester recently. If you're going to import the world, unfortunately, you're going to import some of the world's problems. But when you import it on such a scale as we're seeing now, it becomes an extremely dangerous threat to, to, to this country in terms of social unrest and in terms of, in terms of harmony. You know, contrast the scenes we've seen in, in Sydney. In, it's not just Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
sort of British thing, Sydney, Toronto, New York, all having this. Contrast that with the scenes we're seeing in Tokyo or Warsaw, much more homogenous. There is none, there is none of this on the ground. This is a real problem, and I, I would hope that the scenes we're seeing today will spur people to action, to actually think of how we can best deal with this. And the first way is to actually stop mass immigration and bring it down to much more manageable numbers. Uh, extraordinary. Uh, a bit of breaking news, by the way. Uh, the UK and Ireland are confirmed hosts of the 2028 European Football Championships. So, a bit of good news there, uh, Rafe. Uh, right, to move, um, we uh, are going to move on now. Uh, Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer speaks later today. He will want to convince the British public the party has changed from the days of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, will he convince the public? Uh, I'm going to be joined uh, right now by Mike Gapes, former Labour MP, who left the party under Corbyn and rejoined it earlier this year. This is his first party conference, back as a member. Uh, thanks for joining me, Mike. Uh, what convinced you uh, to uh, sign up again for the Labour project? Uh, because um, Keir Starmer and the team around him have changed the Labour Party. They've reconnected it with the values of the British people. And I'm very comfortable and I'm delighted to be here at the Labour Party conference again. I, I, I used to go from 1974 onwards, I was at Labour Party conferences um, until 2017 was my last one. And I, I'm delighted to be here uh, amongst friends. Everybody is being so warm to me and people are, are saying, welcome back to your home. And it, it's, it's a great atmosphere. Uh, presumably, when you saw uh, the former leader, Jeremy Corbyn, yesterday, refusing to condemn Hamas's appalling raid on Israel, uh, it reminded you why you left the party under Mr Corbyn. Absolutely. Um, and you could say the same about the position that people around him have taken with regard to uh, what Russia is doing in, uh, in Ukraine. And, of course... Um, the, the, the anti-Semitism that was also rampant uh, in that period. And I, that the Labour Party has really changed and uh, the extremists and the cranks are outside the hall, outside the secure zone, waving uh, around the, uh, and having no influence in here. It's a fantastic feeling to be that the Labour Party is back and it's, I hope, on its way back to government. Yeah, you talk about uh, the demonstrations outside. Uh, you're quite right, let's be fair. Uh, they were outside the conference, but it was a bit distressing and disappointing. Uh, not Labour's fault, of course, but to see those hordes of people outside the conference yesterday waving their Palestinian flags. Good old Palestine. Yes, we all support Palestine. Well, wait a second, I don't think we do. Uh, depressing and disappointing to see that. There, there's a time and a place to support Palestine, and uh, right now isn't one of them. Well, I, I think um, we all recognise, and um, David Lammy made this clear in his speech, and I think Keir Starmer will probably refer to it as well, um, that the situation that Israel is facing is absolutely horrific and horrendous. Um, the massacring of young people who were at a peace music festival is just sickening. And anybody who uh, has had uh, young children who've been at, at, at music festivals can't, can't possibly imagine what, what those young people went through. And what we've got is a violent death cult calls itself Hamas and it basically 
has to be defeated. And the biggest victims of Hamas are actually Muslim Arabs, because in Gaza they are running a terrorist state. And every time they do these violent acts, the people who suffer are the innocent civilians and not just Israelis, but also Palestinians. And Hamas is a blockage to a, a two-state peace in, in the Middle East. Uh, and you speak, of course, as a former vice chair of Labour Friends of Israel, so you know what you're talking about. Uh, can we move on, uh, though, Mike? Uh, Keir Starmer, you say that, you know, he's getting in touch uh, with the, you know, the hearts and the minds of the British people. Now, uh, he was asked by Laura Kunzberg on the BBC uh, just ahead of this conference uh, uh, at the weekend. Uh, if the government begin to take planes off for Rwanda... Uh, and uh, it stops the boats. It offers, it offers up a deterrent that succeeds in stopping the dinghies and the boats coming across the channel. So, in other words, our, our cross-channel migrant uh, crisis is solved. It's over. Uh, he says that if he gets into power, he will scrap that, uh, get rid of the Rwanda scheme, so presumably allow the boats and uh, the dinghies to come across the channel again. Do you think that's in tune with the no. hearts and minds no. of the British people? Because it's no. not. No. No one believes who knows anything about the refugee crisis of people going across the Mediterranean or across the Channel. Nobody believes that this expensive uh, Rwanda scheme is going to stop migration. Well, yeah, wait, wait, wait a minute, it, it might. It, it might. Give it a go. Uh, Give it a go. Uh, uh, Why not? Why uh, not try the it? The reality... The reali the it doesn't matter is, nobody believes it. It's worth the, a try. The, 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 no, let, me, let, me, let me finish my point. Nobody believes who understands the origins of this. We have to deal with the people smuggling gangs. These yeah, yeah, boats yeah. Peter, you're digressing. You're digressing. Why would... No, no, Peter, you're digressing. Why would Keir Starmer cancel the Rwanda scheme if it's working, if it stopped the boats? Why would he do it, it, that? It, well, it, uh, it, it's well, not why. working. Why would he it do it? It won't work. Because there are better ways to deal with this yeah, issue. No, no, no. Like we, what we're saying is it's succeeded. It stopped the boats. Oh, he said he will it, reverse it, that. Politics. Allow the boats to cover. That's oh, political oh, incoherence. It's uh, nonsense. Are you, are you, are you, you going to shout me down or are you going to let well, me no, answer I, your question? I want question? you to answer the question. I, no, why no, would he cancel a scheme that has worked? shouting at me. No, no, but I'm Peter, sorry, why I, would I, he cancel a scheme that has worked? This is probably not very good television if you carry on shouting. Can, well, can you well, why would he cancel so a answer? scheme that has worked? Uh, it hasn't worked. And well, no, it but won't I'm work. saying it could. Are, and we are, spending, we are spending hundreds of millions of pounds in Rwanda on a scheme that other countries also tried. Hundreds the, of even millions. Israelis and other, uh, uh, we will be spending. Uh, we, it's 120 million pounds so far has been committed to Rwanda. And, and by this government, work. and there are better there there are better ways, including cooperation. When we left the European Union, we also left the Dublin Agreements, and there was no alternative brought in 
whereby we could return people to European countries. That is something would be more effective, plus the crime and policing cooperation with Europol and cracking down on the gangs internationally. That would be a far more effective way than the Rwanda scheme, which is a waste of money and will not work properly. How do you know that? Uh, you and I have a different view, that's clear. But uh, I think uh, <laughs> people who looked at this issue... Uh... Uh, no, I mean, I'm just saying, Peter, you know, I don't mean to be aggressive with you, uh, but uh, it's just that... Well, uh, you know... But... What we're talking about, uh, look, Mike, you, you, what we're we... talking about, Mike, is this. Uh, you know, I'm saying, hypothetically, the Rwanda scheme is up and running and it has yeah, stopped no. the boats. Uh, and no. we'd all go, great. No. What, what Keir Starmer Politics. is saying, at that no. point, he would reverse that decision and allow the boats to cross again. Yeah, you think that's there in are, harmony there are with more, what the people no, want? No, no, be, no because You're the Rwanda scheme will not... You're all over the scheme will not do what the, the Tories are claiming it will do. It will make a marginal impact, if at all, on the major crisis, and the major problem here is the mass movement of people from North Africa and elsewhere across the Mediterranean and into uh, countries of Europe, and then some of them come across to Britain. But there are, the big problem is what's happening across from North Africa, from Tunisia, from Libya and elsewhere. And there, there are wide issues here, and it requires international cooperation to deal with it. Uh, OK, Mike, uh, listen, I'm really glad you're back in the Labour fold. You're obviously happy about that. Uh, good to spar with you. Yes. Uh, great to talk to you. Thank you very yes. much. Uh, OK, uh, right, thank you. That's Mike Gapes, uh, former Labour MP, uh, up there in Liverpool. So, uh, uh, all happening. Uh, well, Rafe, uh, the, what, 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 well, the, why did the, you get my point? It's fairly obvious. I don't know. The, the, the level of naivety is, you know, it's, 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 right. it's amusing and depressing in equal measure. You everyone agrees you need to have a deterrent of some form, be it Rwanda, be it the Ascension Island, something needs to be there, and you need to process them. But fighting gangs is absolutely the wrong thing because other gangs will replace them overnight. Absolutely. It's a complete nonsense, and any expert will tell you that. And the fact that the Labour Party can't appreciate that doesn't give you much hope for the future. What you really need to do is create a genuine hostile environment in this country which makes immigrants realise, asylum seekers realise, stay in France, stay in Germany, stay anywhere rather than come here. Do what the Danes did. The Danes cut benefits by 50% coming, coming over. I mean, if you, if you come over to that country. You have nobody, we have 50,000 people in hotels. We need to have migrant camps housing all migrants so that they know. I mean, my family who came over after the Second World War from Poland, my mother's cousins, lived for years in a migrant camp. They got married in a migrant camp very happily, you know, and things have changed a lot since the 1950s in terms of uh, living standards and so forth. You need to have strict policies and also, most importantly, a French politician said recently, it's not rocket science, make Britain less attractive than France. That means crack down on the black market employment in this country, where it's far easier for people to disappear into the underground economy and also crack down on landlords who don't check uh, those people who are living with them. France is much better at doing that. That's one of the drivers of people to come over here. There's so much that could be done, and the Labour Party isn't willing to address them. Absolutely, and uh, Keir Starmer will not be running on this ticket. I will reverse the Rwanda scheme. He won't mention that again, because that was incoherent.
Welcome back. You are watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, with me, Kevin O'Sullivan. Now, here on Talk TV, we love giving everyone a say, even if we disagree with them. One of those is Dale Vince, donor to the Labour Party, and until recently, Just Stop Oil. Only he now says he thinks their continued disruption is pointless and that we won't be giving them any more cash. I am delighted to say that Dale joins me now. Uh, what's the matter, Dale? Was uh, disrupting Les Mis uh, the final straw for you? <laughs> well, actually, if you notice, uh, Kevin, we announced it before that happened. Uh, we announced last Friday. It had been something I'd been thinking about for a few weeks. Uh, and, and the reason really is that the Conservative government have made it clear that no amount of protesting will stop them from drilling in the North Sea. And in fact, they're doubling down, issuing hundreds of licenses instead of five. And so uh, my, my, my rationale is that uh, we could protest against this government for another 20 years. We won't stop oil. But there's an election coming in maybe 12 months time, maybe less. And we can stop oil at the election, at the ballot box. Yeah, that was uh, my reaction to when they invaded the stage last week in the West End Les, Les Miserables. Uh, you know, they've been doing this now, I mean, in various guises, uh, Just Stop Oil before that, uh, Insulate Britain, before that, uh, uh, Extinction Rebellion. So all of these protests, we know all about them, sticking your hands to the roads, uh, blocking bridges, uh, and, of course, uh, Just Stop Oil's various imaginative demonstrations, uh, you know, uh, invading sports events, and now the stage, etc. Now, they've been doing this, you know, with monotonous regularity for a couple of years. Is it more? Three years. And uh, the net result is that two weeks ago, the Prime Minister uh, announced a dramatic U-turn on all his green initiatives. So, in actual fact, the yes, government exactly. is just not paying any attention to these demonstrations at all. They have not worked. I agree with you. Uh, there you go, Dale. We've reached that moment of harmony we never expected. I didn't expect that. <laughs> but seriously, <laughs> but I mean, and, and the demonstrations is, uh, that don't work are pointless, aren't they? I believe now that further demonstration disruption on this issue would not just be pointless, it would be counterproductive. I think uh, the government will use this as part of their new culture war narrative. Uh, and as you say yourself, uh, Rishi Sunak has announced basically a U-turn on green policies. He's going to make this an issue of the election, a dividing line between him and Labour, clear green water, if you like, between the two parties. And I think more disruption now will just feed that narrative, which is why I'm stepping away and saying what we actually have to do is to focus on the election. And there's a whole group of people in our country, 18 to 24 year old, uh, that they're going to find it really hard to vote in this election because uh, basically the Conservatives have created some new laws to put obstacles in their path. So our new campaign, Just Vote 24, is going to focus firstly on the age group to help them understand that actually they have a real uh, voice in this election, which is being suppressed, and, uh, and show them how to register and how to vote. Um, now, I seem to remember at some point last week trying to get hold of you to see if you'd come on my show uh, to discuss your reaction to the storming of the stage uh, of Les Miserables in the West End. Uh, and uh, I believe you were busy. Uh, but uh, was that the point when you thought enough is enough, this stuff isn't working? All that's happening here is that people who paid 175 quid for a nice night at the theatre are having their enjoyment spoiled. Nothing is being achieved. Was it the uh, West End demonstration that made you think it's time to stop funding Just Stop Oil? Yeah, I couldn't join you on that uh, question last week. I, I would have liked to. But look, you asked me this at the beginning of our chat just now, and I said no, because we'd made the announcement before that protest took place and had been thinking about it for a few weeks. Um, it, just, it just came after the event, and honestly, I think it reinforced uh, my, my feeling that there, there wasn't any point in it. 
um, you know, uh, and, I, and I've said, you know, already I've said why I think that, why I think it's not just pointless, but it's counterproductive. And we really need to focus on the next election because the only way we can stop oil is at the ballot box. Uh, now, you're up there at the Labour conference. You're awaiting Keir Starmer's speech this afternoon, two o'clock, I think. Uh, uh, we're all uh, on the edge of our seats about that. Uh, I mean, what do you, <laughs> what do you, you feel... <laughs> what do you feel about <laughs> Keir Starmer? I mean, you know, he's uh, running on a ticket of, uh, what is it, a green, a fairer future. Uh, he wants to give Britain its hope and optimism back. Uh, I mean... Is he, is he the man, as far as you're concerned? Uh, is he a good person to be the next Prime Minister? Will he achieve all of your green dreams, uh, Dale? There's a lot of questions in that one. Uh, I think Green Affair of Future was last year's slogan. This one is getting our country back or the future of our country back. Uh, look, I believe that Keir Starmer is the right man to lead our country. I think Labour Party are the right party to be in government. They absolutely get the green agenda. And... I just want to say this, that the thing that concerns most people in our country is the cost of living crisis is caused by fossil fuels and our utter dependence upon them. And the way we solve that is by bringing in the green economy, moving to 100% green energy, and at the same time fighting the climate crisis. It's the answer to all of the problems that we face. Labour gets that. And so, yeah, I believe absolutely uh, we need a Labour win at the next election and we can change the direction of our country. How, how can he carry the people with him when what you're proposing in terms of uh, his green future, it's not, well, it's not a green, a fairer future, he's abandoned that one, has he? So there's uh, no, no longer a fair future, no longer a green future. Yeah, it's difficult to keep up with, right. old, with old Mr Flip-Flop, right. isn't it? But will he take, Dale, no, to be serious, will he take the people with him? Because greener futures involve more money. You know, we have to spend more on levies, on our energy bills. We're told not to drive petrol cars. We're told to be careful about our holidays in Spain or to save the planet. These are not inherently popular things to propose to people. Uh, can he take the people with yeah. him? Yeah, because this is a false narrative. We're hearing it from Rishi Sunak in the last couple of weeks that, uh, you know, we can't afford to, uh, to make the green transition to green energy, for example, when the truth is we can't afford more fossil fuels. We're just spending, as a country, $4 billion on Rosebank, and we're giving that $4 billion to a Norwegian energy company. All of the profits from that... Uh, that site will go to Norwegian people, not the British people. We'll create 450 jobs for this £4 billion. It's a terrible thing to do. The oil won't even land here. It's going straight to international markets. With the same sum of money spent on green energy, we'd create about 30,000 jobs. And the energy is cheaper than fossil fuels. And, and uh, so it, it, it kind of frustrates me a little bit that the message is false to the British people that we can't afford green energy. It's the only kind of energy we can afford. We can get our energy bills on the floor and keep them there if we power ourselves completely completely with renewable energy. And with the electric car thing, again, it was a but false presentation Dale. saying he was helping hard-working people. We can't, we can't, Why, we can't <laughs> power ourselves exclusively Why? with green energy. Uh, we're always going to need some okay. carbon. We're going to need gas. We're going to need oil. Uh, even our target, uh, the carbon net zero by 2050, it isn't to get rid of all oil and all fossil fuels. That is factored in. So this total green future is just a fantasy and a myth. Understood. I hear what you're saying. But look, do you know more about our national grid than the national grid company? Because they say we can power ourselves 100% by green energy and they run the grid. Well, uh, they don't run the grid very well, if I might say. Uh, what happens when there's no <laughs> wind and there's no off? sun? What happens when there's no wind and there's well, no have... sun? How, how do we power ourselves from windmills and solar panels? Do you think that they haven't thought of that? Well, they yes, the I do. It's their job to keep the lights on. Well, they haven't thought of it so far. <laughs> That's crazy. 
<laughs> they have. They absolutely have. At the moment, they're balancing nearly 50% green energy on the electricity grid, and they're making that work. We've got all kinds of technology coming. We've got the smart grid where we manage demand at different times of the day using smart meters as well. And this is what they've... Uh, this is the, the vision of the future that they have. It's their job to run the grid and keep the lights on. They say they can do it 100% on green energy. So, uh, with respect, I think they know more about it than well, you or I, actually. Yep. Well, that's as maybe, but when you say, oh, let's leave it to those great guys <laughs> at the grid, uh, I don't think most people will be inspired with confidence over that. I mean, so far, uh, the way it's looking is not too great. I mean, we're not even being guaranteed right. full power through the winter. We're being told you might get power cuts. That's the way it is now. That is due to incoherent energy policies dating back decades in which we have systematically replaced reliable power sources with unreliable power sources. That's where no, we're at that's now. That's untrue. That's untrue. Why so is the it warnings untrue, of power Dale? cuts came, came... I'm going to tell you. The warnings of power cuts came last winter when our government refused to give energy efficiency advice to recommend that people use less energy in that uh, crisis winter we had when Russian gas was turned off to Europe. In Europe, they cut their gas consumption by 20% and they had no problems. In the UK, our government said, oh, we're not the nanny state. People can use as much energy as they want, but we might have power cuts, the national grid said. So that was a failure of government, actually. And when we build renewable energy and replace fossil fuels on the grid, we don't shut those fossil fuel projects down. We reduce their output and the, the amount of time they used. And once we've built the 100% green grid, we'll still have the fossil plants if we ever need to use them. We can use them as backup if we need to. So all of this... All of this stuff is entirely possible. I, honestly, I think that you don't understand it enough, but I'm here to try and help you do that. Well, thank you very much, Dale. Uh, good to have you on board to uh, educate yeah, my pleasure. me. Uh, but seriously, uh, <laughs> let's come to the, the, all, the, the normal point we always come to here, which is the Chinese elephant in the room. All of what you're talking about, let's, uh, give, you the, uh, let's give you the benefit of the doubt for a second to just say that all of your green dream comes true. Uh, we already only produce less than 1% of the world's carbon emissions, 1% of world pollution. Uh, China produces 28 percent, uh, the vast majority of the world's uh, pollution. It has 1,100 coal fuel power stations. It's busy building 300 more. It is prospecting for more coal seams. Uh, what is the point of anything we do when nothing we do will make any difference to the global picture? Meanwhile, China, and for that matter, Russia, for that matter, Brazil, uh, India, even America and Australia, belting out loads and loads of carbon emissions. Why are we just virtue signaling when everything we do will make no real difference? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting narrative. I've heard it before, of course, the China question. I think, I think two things. One is I'm going to give you some facts about China, but the first thing I want to say is it's kind of, uh, it's, it's morally wrong to say we're too small to matter, therefore we let the rest of the world get on with it. We do have a role in world affairs, and the example that we set counts for something. We can't argue that the world needs to decarbonize if we're not doing it ourselves. So there's a moral issue there first. Secondly, if you understand China and what they're doing to build renewables, you'll see that they're ahead of Britain. They're world leaders in renewable energy. They have built more solar they're panels also world than the leaders rest of the in world. Carbon emissions the rest of the world. Uh, you've said that. You've said that. So <laughs> let me tell you this. More solar panels than the rest of the world put together. Yeah, great. 98% right? of, of buses on the roads of China are electric already. I mean, they're doing incredible things. Yeah, they're world no, leaders. they're not, they're Dale. Ahead of the, they are spewing loads of, loads of smoke into check the environment. Out. Check Dale, out. Dale, check you out. and I are they're never going to agree in a month of Sundays, <laughs> but it's great Let to talk to you. Let me tell you some facts. No, later on. on. Yeah, Another pleasure. time, mate.
Keir Starmer's set to make his big speech at the annual Labour Party conference this afternoon. We've already heard from his left and right hand women, Deputy Leader uh, Angela Rayner and Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves. And today at 2pm, Sakir will promise the country a decade of national renewal. I'm joined now, uh, well, rejoined by Talk TV's international editor, Isabel Oakeshott. Uh, a decade of Starmer, that sounds bad. Uh, what on earth does he mean by a decade of national renewal? This is what I worry about. He's also going to, in this massive keynote speech, the last time he gave one, by the way, I think it went on for about 90 minutes. Oh, so golly. please, not that long, <laughs> Keir, for God's sake, spare us. Uh, but he's going to promise new powers for all of England's towns and cities. So he's saying a decade of national renewal. I would say that adds up to a decade of disastrous devolution. We've got too much devolution already. Yeah, and it didn't actually work particularly well under the Tories. I mean, they've tried this as well. I wouldn't have said it's been a stunning it's success. Disaster, I think. Basically, because people, as it turns out, are not that eager to run for not very well-paid posts, running, you know, police and crime commission, that kind of thing. It just hasn't been a brilliant success. So I don't really know why they're doing that. So the whole theme of Sakir's speech this afternoon is all about reversing years of Tory decline. I mean, I think we can all get on board with reversing decline. The question is... That's, how that's the Tories' policy as how well. How exactly <laughs> are you going to do that? Yeah, reversing the decline that they presided over. <laughs> Brilliant. Well done. Everyone's being really original here, aren't they? Um, I slightly fear that this speech is going to be a classic party conference speech, which, to be fair on Rishi Sunak's, his wasn't. It did actually contain some pretty meaty and pretty controversial proposals. It sounds as if Sakir's speech is going to be a lot of kind of flammel, you know, we've got this vision for rebuilding, you know, we're going to make everything better. Well, yes, exactly, but how? Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, his Rwanda uh, plan uh, is extraordinary. Uh, we keep coming back to it, but uh, I need to get your take on it. Uh, that uh, in an interview with Laura Kingsburg, uh, Kunzberg on the BBC at the weekend, uh, he said that, uh, hypothetically, if the government get the Rwanda scheme going and it does act as the deterrent they hope and it works and it stops all the boats, Keir Starmer will reverse that, that decision uh, and axe the Rwanda scheme. I mean, what on earth is he talking so is, about? That is his idea of reversing decline, is it? Actually going backwards. Yeah. Um, look, they don't... They don't the, the reason he's saying that is because they don't actually particularly ideologically want to reduce the amount of immigration to this country. You know, all they talk about is, well, we need more safe routes, you know, to which the argument is there's actually... I mean, this is a red herring. There are plenty of safe routes into this country. That's how a million extra people came in last year, fully legally and legitimately from all over the world. So Labour don't have an answer uh, that will satisfy the majority of voters in this country on immigration because poll after poll, it's not a party political comment by me, poll after poll shows that the majority of the people in this country, whether they vote Labour, whether they vote Tory, whatever their political allegiance is, they are very unhappy with the scale of immigration to this country and also the poor security of our borders. Labour don't have any answers to that. Absolutely. Uh, also, uh, you know, Keir Starmer as we found out, was it two, three weeks ago, you know, when he went to The Hague and started saying to the EU, please, can we do a deal with you on our migrants? We'll take our fair share. He's completely out of step with the British people there. And uh, what the British people don't want to see is him turning, you know, yearningly to 
Brussels and going, let's make a deal, help us out, help us out. It's never worked it, for it, us thus far, has it? it flies in the face of uh, the democratic decision the people of Britain made to leave the EU. Why is he appealing to Brussels? Because he doesn't get out enough, perhaps. He doesn't get out beyond <laughs> Lon central London enough. Um, it, it, it's very obvious uh, that there is an overwhelming hostility to yet more... If essentially, what Labour wants is more open borders. A lot of them almost pretty much admit that. So this is a huge weak point for Labour going into the next election. The one thing they've got in their favour is that it's the Tories who've presided over the situation we're in. So neither party is offering a very good solution. Rwanda seems to be the best that they've got. If they can make that work, the Tories, then perhaps they'll be able to at least demonstrate some progress. Yeah. That's it. I'll tell you what's funny, uh, what made me laugh was uh, Sunak uh, saying, change, change, I'm the candidate for change, change. Right. Conservatives don't like change. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think he's it's all he's got, though, hasn't it? It's not going to work as a pitch if he says, well, you know, I just want to continue from the brilliant 13 years that this government has presided over. Uh, but what a shame for Labour. Their conference has been totally overshadowed by this awful geopolitical situation, which is an extremely awkward issue awkward for, for Labour at the best of times. So, you know, Keir Starmer's just not lucky, is he? He's not a lucky politician. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and all great politicians actually do need luck. Uh, and to have this uh, great dark cloud of shadow over the whole com yeah. conference... This is, this is their going big on moment Israel. to I mean, set out their stall. And nobody's really listening, let's yeah. be honest. Uh, put it this way, uh, the Labour Party conference is not making the front pages. Uh, also, uh, this is what uh, worried me, was uh, Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, making her speech yesterday, somehow blaming uh, some of our financial problems, our economic problems, on the fact that the rich are avoiding tax. Right. And he wants, she wants to tax the rich more so the poor can get the money. I mean, old-fashioned Labour stuff, uh, but quite worrying and wrong-headed, I would say. That's not where our financial problems stem from. It's not the rich avoiding of tax, is it? Of course not. I'm afraid the whole gathering absolutely oozes class envy. I listened to the enormous cheer that greeted the announcement about VAT on private school fees, as if this is going to resolve the UK's problems and how utterly wrong-headed that policy is anyway, because for sure adding 20% to school fees that are already rocketing is going to push a very great deal of the pupils that are currently in independent schools into the state sector. And guess what? We already don't have enough teachers in the state sector. It's only going to cost the state more. So it's a completely stupid policy, but they all love it. They cheered to the rafters because this is essentially what they see as an attack on privilege. I tell you who cheered from the rafters at uh, <coughs> Rachel Reeves's speech uh, was the former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, uh, who might as well... Why doesn't he just come out and say, I vote Labour? I mean, the guy Because he doesn't is... need to, because I think we kind of roughly know where he is. <laughs> I think he votes communist, actually. Uh, but it's strange the way this guy has always sided with the left, always sided with Europe uh, and against the Tories. I mean, this was a guy who was the governor of the Bank of England. Quite but inappropriate behaviour. Ultimate establishment figure, really, isn't he? And this is straight out of the 
um, kind of Blair playbook, isn't it, from the late 90s? You know, you got to get these so-called credible figures, these heavy hitters, basically establishment figures, to say, look, don't be scared of Labour. You know, Rachel Reeves is a, is a brilliant economist. Um, I don't feel any better for having listened to that. I'm sure you don't either. No, that was not the most uh, exhilarating of speeches. But then again, Rachel isn't famous uh, for that. Uh, and... Uh, how much do you think uh, we should worry about uh, Keir Starmer and Labour? Suppose, horror of horrors, they win the next election. Let's face it, they're on course to do that. Uh, uh, will the mask slip then? Because he is projecting a sort of Blairite, uh, centrist Labour party. You know, you can trust us, we're sensible, we're moderate. Uh, but he's never been moderate politically in his entire life. Uh, when he gets into number 10 Downing Street, will we see the real Keir and should we fear that? I mean, yes. I mean, this was, after all, this is somebody who was happy to serve in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. This is somebody who isn't actually at all Blairite. You know, you look at the policies that they are pushing and they're not really what... They, they don't bear any resemblance to the aspirational messages that were coming out of New Labour. That pivot that Blair and Brown so successfully did to move away from the left, to actually get to the centre ground, even sometimes tilting a little bit to the right of centre. We see none of that here. Only a few little gestures to try to uh, court the city a little bit. I mean, the city is not reassured by any of this. They just feel that it may be inevitable, so they've got at least to listen. Uh, but I'm very worried about it. I think anybody who wants to see growth, who wants to see the, um, the promise of Brexit in any way fulfilled, should be extremely concerned about what is coming down the track from a party, a party leadership that has never supported Brexit and is making very little secret of its hopes of essentially reforging a relationship with the EU, which is will effectively take us back in, uh, in all but name. Exactly. I and mean, it's clear that's what he wants to do. Uh, you know, he actually said, didn't he, that he wants to uh, uh, have a close relationship with the EU uh, and to basically uh, stick to everything that they want, which is not what we voted for. But to what extent, Isabel, do you think that... Um, Kia's march towards Downing Street is fueled uh, by, you know, a groundswell, a new groundswell of support for Labour, or more to the point, I would suggest, it is just disaffection and fatigue with 13 years of Tory government. People do want to change, and the easiest way to get change is vote for a different party. Do you think it's Well, that? it's a huge reflection, and I wouldn't say it's a march towards Downing Street anyway. I think it's a sort of a bit of a slow walk with some potential pitfalls along the way, are quite big potential pitfalls. Um, look, there's no groundswell of, of um, enthusiasm, I don't sense, and not, neither do the polls suggest, for uh, either the Labour Party uh, broadly and its offer at the moment or Keir Starmer as a leader. You know, nobody is excited by you're Keir right, Starmer. Right. But the problem we've got is in a two-party system, many people up and down the country feel that if they want change and they don't want to reward the Tories for, frankly, the dreadful state this country is in, then their vote is wasted unless they vote for uh, Labour. I think the Lib Dems are going to do a lot better than anybody uh, is God, really giving really. credit for right now, <laughs> not least because where on earth is their leader? Had Davey anyone? Has anyone Last time I saw him, he was falling him? out of a canoe into the river. I have no idea where he is or what he thinks or what he's saying because he's invisible. 
but his ground forces are doing a great job in quite a lot of constituencies. It'll be interesting uh, if at the next election, uh, as uh, looks mm. possible, you know, the SNP implode and Labour get quite a lot of seats up in Scotland. So Lib the Lib Dems could become the third party. Yeah. So once again, they get that pulpit uh, where yeah. the uh, Lib Dem leader gets to speak every time there's Prime Minister's question time because losing that has turned them into the invisible force, hasn't it? Well, I think um, Ed Davey has turned himself into an invisible force. I mean, there's absolutely space right now for a, of a, a third party, a... Um, a vocal and exciting party leader would get a lot of airtime. It's just that he's not exciting, so he's not boring, vocal, and he's not really doing anything. Absolutely, so boring. Uh, let's uh, read a couple of comments. This is Jenny on Labour. She says, your guest shows... Uh, this was a uh, guy called Mike Gapes, a former Labour MP I had on earlier. Uh, he said he showed that Labour know nothing on illegal migration gangs will be replaced quicker than a flash. It happened already. Gangs have been imprisoned, yet they are replaced. Yeah, this constant obsession with all oh, the evil people smugglers, I always say, well, what about the migrants? They don't get into those boats uh, involuntarily. They, they pay money to so, come across. So, so, Kevin, I couldn't agree with you more on this. And, and you know why people keep repeating this phrase, why politicians keep repeating this, this phrase? These, Ill these dreadful, terrible, evil people smugglers. That's the easiest thing they can say. Because we can all agree that those are bad guys, yeah, right? Of course they are. Uh, but let's be much more... I think, actually, voters want to hear more honesty. Those people smugglers are responding to a market. They don't create the market. Their boats are filled with very willing people exactly. who are paying good money to come to a new life. And, frankly, I can't blame them. We offer them a great alternative to wherever it is they've come from. Generally, not actually from war and terror, certainly not from the shores of France. France They're not yeah. escaping anything there. Uh, but, yes, we can all agree the people smugglers are bad people, but I think we also have to look at the very questionable motives of many of the people that are filling those boots. Uh, here's another comment, pretty basic. It's from Kevin. Nice name. Kevin on Labour. Uh, if you don't vote for the Tories, uh, then you will get a Labour government and then we'll be in re a real mess. Uh, I mean, do you think, uh, you know, that there's always this um, depiction of what happens on ballot day? It can be yes. very different to what everybody yes. has been predicting. So come that moment. Neil Kinnock experienced it back in the 90s. It was his big moment. He was going to be the next Prime Minister. And everybody went into the ballot box and at the last moment they go, I cannot bring myself to vote for Labour. I'm going for the Tories. And guess what? He lost. Yeah. Uh, do you think that could happen? That people yeah, I do. Will I be actually worried? do think that I could do. happen. I, and I, I think there could be quite a lot of tactical stuff going on um, much nearer the time where certain parties... Although they remain on the ballot paper, they have quiet agreements with other parties that they will do less campaigning in a particular constituency. Let's see who can combine to, com to, uh, to defeat the incumbent. That might actually work in Labour's favour in some seats where perhaps the Lib Dems quietly say, actually, we're not going to bother with this one. And, you know, it takes a lot of money to fight individual marginal seats. So parties, unless they've got multi-million pound coffers, which really only Labour uh, and the Tories do, the smaller parties have to make quite pragmatic decisions about where to concentrate their resources. Indeed. Uh, last one. This is uh, from Terry, again on Labour. Uh, I'm predicting a hung parliament with mm. a reform possibly being the kingmaker. 
Uh, I'm not sure about the reform uh, element, but uh, do you think it could be a... So I think a Hong Parliament, Parliament is, is not... Um, it's not by any means unlikely. Um, as for reform being the kingmaker, that's really difficult for the reasons that we were just talking about under the first-past-the-post system. It's really difficult for a very small new party with no MPs to actually suddenly get 50 MPs, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, sure. Uh, what could happen, though, is that there's a hung parliament and that ushers in proportional representation, which then longer term, allows a party like Reform to have much more of a presence in Westminster. Yeah, that would be a massive game changer. Uh, Talk TV's international editor, Isabel Oakshot, thank you so much for coming in. Welcome back. You are watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham with me, Kevin O'Sullivan, here on Talk TV. The prison service has been reduced to lunacy and the health and safety of the staff working in jails has been compromised. That's what the president of the Prison Governors Association, Andrea Albert, will say today in a conference address to its members. There has been uh, increases of nearly 10,000 prisoners compared to two years ago. Uh, joining me now to discuss this is crime and policing commentator Danny Shaw. Uh, Danny, is the increase in the prison population creating strain on the system? Oh, it's creating huge strain, Kevin. Um, it's creating strain in a number of different ways. Uh, what it means is that the prisoners are having to be moved around all the time to try and accommodate, uh, you know, space, uh, essentially. Um, it's very destabilising for the prison system. It means a lot of energy is going into trying to find spaces and trying to do the sort of musical chairs. Um, so that's happening at sort of, uh, you know, at management level, if you like. But what it really means is that there is also, coupled with the shortage of places, there is a shortage of staff. And we've heard about that a lot uh, following the, the ones with prison breakout. And that means that prisoners are locked in their cells for a long period of time. They don't get to do the education, the training, the work uh, training, um, the rehabilitation sorts of activities that they need to do so that when they're released, they don't go on uh, committing further crimes and creating more victims. So that's that's the sort of strain that it's putting on the system. Uh, but, you know, prisons are literally running out of space. They are down to about 600 spare places across England and Wales. And that means that in the men's uh, prison estate, there's just a few hundred spare places. Now, you know, you might think, oh, well, that's OK. There's a few hundred um, uh, spare places. But every week, the population is going up by 100 or 200. It's risen, as you said, uh, 10,000 in a couple of years. In the past year, it's risen by almost 7,000. Um, and it is forecast to go up to 94,000 within 18 months. It's currently 88,000. 94,000 within 18 months. There is not enough capacity in the system and the prison building plans are way behind schedule. So even though there is a new prison being built uh, in York on the site of Full Sutton Prison, we've got new accommodation which is slowly being ramped up. It's not going to be enough to deal with that expected uh, population increase. And I suppose, Danny, as well, uh, you know, they're building, they are building new prisons, but uh, very slowly, as you say. Uh, but if we get them built, the, you know, we have a staffing problem with the prisons we've already got. I mean, who's going to work there? Do you see what I'm saying? 
Yeah, there's a big recruitment exercise that's been launched by the Ministry of Justice uh, to try and get more people to, to sign up as prison officers. They've scaled back the training a little bit so that prison officers can be sort of sped through the training process. More of it's going online. So these are all efforts to try and ramp up recruitment. The problem in some areas is that the rates of pay are just not attractive enough compared to other jobs which are less uh, onerous uh, and less risky. I mean, let, let's face it, Kevin, being a prison officer, I think the prison officers are the most undervalued public servants that we have in our country. Um, I put them on a par with nurses, with doctors, with police officers, what they do every single day. They do, at times, a very dangerous job with some of the most violent criminals. They also have to deal with people having self-harmed, people having uh, killed themselves, having to deal with those situations. Um, and as well as that, you know, you're asking them in some situations uh, to be, you know, to put an arm around the shoulder of a prisoner to help them to try and sort of get them to to reform their lives. It's an incredibly difficult job. I don't think they're rewarded enough um, for what they do. And that's one of the reasons why in some areas of the country there is this shortage. And because of this shortage and indeed, uh, you know, the shortage of prisons, I guess, uh, some prisons are just basically being reduced to being holding tanks, warehouses where you put people and you try to make sure they don't break out. Uh, now, there's a, a prison uh, in Northamptonshire called uh, Five Wells, £253 million facilities. They're smart prisons, supposed to be modern. The inmates are referred to as residents. There are no bars on the windows. And the net result of all of this seems to be that uh, uh, almost on a daily basis, inmates throw booze and drug-fueled cell parties, clamber onto the roof and share their brazen antics on social media with contraband and mobile phones. Uh, and uh, the guards are basically terrified. Uh, I've heard about this before, that, you know, in the past... Uh, prison guards were plentiful, numerous, and they tended to be ex-army. Uh, you didn't mess around with them. Uh, uh, if you did mess around with them, they let you know who was in charge. These days, uh, not so much ex-army, uh, and uh, they're terrified of the prisoners, and the prisoners are getting away, uh, I don't suppose uh, getting away with murder is the right phrase, uh, but you take my point. They're, uh, they're just having a 24-7 party. Uh, that's got to be wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. Five Wells is, is a very interesting example that you've picked on. It's a new prison um, that was opened on the site of an old prison, Wellingborough Prison. Um, and the difficulty with a new prison, and we've seen this before with Oakwood Prison when it opened, with Berwyn Prison in, in Wales when that opened, new prisons struggle quite often in the early months and early couple of years to establish a kind of strong ethos and a strong culture um, as, as the prisoners are, are put into the jail. And if you put too many prisoners in too quickly, then you get the sort of problems that you're getting now at Five Wells. And it, it may take time for it to settle down there. But my concern is the government's so short of spaces that they're having to put more prisoners into this prison, Five Wells, and Foss Way, which is a new prison in Leicestershire, more quickly than they should do because they're so short of places. You have to be very, very careful with new prisons. You've got this amazing prison with 1,000, 2,000 spaces. You want to fill it up, but you've got to establish a strong culture and ethos. The other issue is, as you say, probably a lot of new prison staff 
that don't have those years of experience to be able to handle certain situations or to see danger when it's coming. Uh, indeed. Uh, uh, what do we get? What's the advantage? Uh, what's the possible advantage of calling prisoners residents? Uh, I even read that uh, uh, in some prisons uh, they've suggested calling them clients. I mean, these are crooks. They're lawbreakers. They're prisoners. Uh, why don't we call them what they are? Why do we have to call them res residents? Why do we have to wrap them up in euphemisms? Uh, Kevin, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, call a prisoner a prisoner. Uh, but but I have to say, this is not the main issue. And it's not the reason that we're facing a crisis in our prisons. It's really a side issue. I know it's it's something that, you know, people get exercised about. And I agree. Uh, you know, I've got no truck with calling someone who's been sent to prison uh, a resident or, you know, a client. I mean, it's a ridiculous term. <laughs> But let's focus on the real issue here and what we're going to do about this. Because I tell you what, the government is hoping that it can carry on just adding a hundred places here, a couple of hundred places there, step by step, step by step until election time. You know, a bit like a toothpaste um, tube. You're squeezing the last bit of the toothpaste out and they're hoping that when the election comes, they can hand that toothpaste tube over to the next government and say, right, it's your problem now. That's what they're trying to do with the with the prison places, because the one thing that this government does not want to do is to introduce an early release scheme to let some prisoners out. They do not want to do that before an election. So they're trying to squeeze places out wherever they can find them, which is why they came up with this idea of renting prison places abroad overseas. I mean, you know, it could be done, but there are so many logistical issues around it, apart from legal issues. I think it would take months and months to get that up and running. That won't happen uh, in time. Um, and, and I think this is what they're doing is they're trying to kind of eke out the places they've got and hope that by the next election, it's either another government's problem or they'll have take some difficult decisions after the next election. Yeah, that's apparently what the pre president of the Prison Governors Association is going to say, uh, that uh, the Tories are hoping they can just about cope until the election uh, and then it will be someone else's problems. Uh, they also she, She's also going to talk about longer sentencing partly being the cause in the rise of prison population. Uh, I mean, that, I think, uh, takes matters into a, in a worrying direction. If you start saying, oh, well, you're guilty of murder or rape, uh, but frankly, the prisons are so overcrowded, uh, we're going to give you six months, uh, then, uh, you know, that uh, is a kind of dysfunctional legal system. Uh, the punishment has to fit the crime, doesn't it? it the punishment cannot fit the number of cells available. Yeah, no, look, I absolutely agree agree with you on that. And I don't think that Andrew Ulbart, the president of the, of the Prison Governors Association, is suggesting that serious offences like murder or rape uh, should be treated leniently. Um, but one of the reasons we're in this population crisis um, with not enough spaces is because sentences have increased. Now, I'm an absolute believer in long sentences for the violent criminals and to ensure, firstly, that the public is safe, and secondly, that they get long enough in prison to try and rehabilitate and reform and change their ways so that when they are released, they're safer. I'm absolutely a believer in that. But there are also some prisoners who are in for very short uh, spells of prison that do nothing to help their rehabilitation for less than six months. And there are also a record number of prisoners, 14,000. That's about one in six 
of the population, 14,000 who are on remand. So they haven't been convicted, they haven't been sentenced. Now, many of those prisoners probably should be in prison on remand, but there may be some who shouldn't and who actually won't be convicted. So I think this is complicated, but I think what you have to do is look, at, there may be some people who are locked up on suspicion of more minor offences or very short sentences where I think you've got to look for tough alternatives in the community, tagging curfew. That's the only way I think to relieve the crisis. Uh, last question, Danny. Uh, as you alluded to earlier, there are suggestions that we might contract out. Uh, we might uh, subcontract some of our prisoners uh, to foreign jails. Uh, now, it strikes me that's not that bad an idea. But is there a sort of human rights issue in terms of relatives visiting them? I mean, if they're thousands of miles away in another country, uh, their number of visits from loved ones and family members uh, might be somewhat reduced. Kevin, I think the only way to do this is um, if you're going to rent a jail space in some other foreign countries, and as I've said before, I think there's huge logistical issues around that. Whether that will ever happen, I'm really frankly doubtful. But the only way to do it would be to put some of the foreign national prisoners who are currently in English jails in those uh, overseas prisons. Currently, there are 10,000 foreign national prisoners in jails in England and Wales, 10,000. The government has repeatedly said, in fact, governments over the years have said, we're trying to do deals with, with their home countries so that we can send them back to serve their sentences in their home countries. Those deals just never seem to make much dent in that, in that particular population. So it is possible, for example, if you um, found jail space in Albania or Poland or Romania, for instance, that you know, which are the top three countries where foreign national prisoners are from, that you could actually place them back there in those countries. Equally, if you had someone um, from an Eastern European country, if you had jails in an Eastern European country and you had a, a number of Romanian or Polish prisoners, it's possible that you could put them in there. But I think the family connections is the weakest point in that plan because family ties are really important for helping prisoners when they're released uh, to, 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 stay, to steer clear of crime. Family connections, incredibly important, and you will lose that if, if we have overseas jails um, with uh, prisoners from this country. Clearly, that would be lost. And I think, yeah, there could be human rights challenges, but it's not just that. It is actually a practical issue. It is incredibly important for rehabilitation. And, and, you know, we don't want prisoners to come out and commit more crimes. So we have to do things that will stop that. And one of those things is maintaining family ties. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.